Hey guys, this is the Real Life Monopoly Podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. We are real estate investors, and the point of our podcast is to help you reach your financial goals, which will allow you to have time to focus on your true passion so that you can live not only a happier, but more fulfilled life. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this is Jeffrey Donis, and today we will be having Kent Ritter out of Indianapolis. Kent is a part of Burgeon Held, which is a real estate development investment they actually have a property management company and they invest in multifamily housing. It is a very large company that owns over $1.5 billion worth of assets and it is still growing today. So without further ado, we're going to get right into it. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you for tuning in with the Donis Brothers. This is your co-host Jeffrey Donis alongside my partners and brothers Kerwin and Kenneth Donis. Today on the show, we'll be having Kent Ritter. Kent, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys, first of all. And uh, like you said, my name is Kent Ritter. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm a, I'm a father, uh, husband, father of three, and uh, I'm a full-time real estate investor. And uh, I, I work with a firm called Burge & Held. I'm a partner at the firm, and we have about 15,000 units in 10 states, all multifamily focused. And we focused on on value-add properties. Um on syndications, bringing, you know, pulling investor money together, bringing investors in, purchasing the properties, improving the properties, and then uh, creating returns for our investors. And we've been doing that since about Kent, 2008. That's awesome. Uh, do you mind going into maybe how you got started in real estate in the first place? Um, I'm not sure how long you've been with this company, but mm -hmm. if that was the first step, then we would love to learn. Yeah, no, not, <clears throat> excuse me, not the first step. It was kind of a winding path to get there. So, I started out my career uh, as a management consultant. So when I when I graduated from college, um, went into that field, traveled around the country, you know, helping big companies solve big problems essentially. And it was a great just kind of masterclass in how do you run businesses, probably more how to not run businesses because you know nobody calls you when things are going well. Uh, but it was just a great learning experience. And so I spent about the first seven years of my career doing that. Um, there was a there was a turning point where uh, myself and, and some of the guys I was working with uh, decided to leave and, and start our own company because we just felt the market was going in a different direction and we wanted to wanted to be able to meet them there. So we started our own business. We started a, our own boutique consulting firm. Uh, we ran that for six years, grew that to 95 employees with about 30 million in annual revenue. And then in 2015, we decided it was time to exit that business. Um, because it was it was just the right time in the market, and we just, like they say, got an offer we couldn't refuse. So we decided to exit, and that really kicked off my my real estate journey because I, I had this capital from selling the business, and I knew I didn't want to have all my money in the stock market. I knew I didn't want all my eggs in, in one basket, as they say. So I started looking at other opportunities and other avenues for investing. And as I just started listening to podcasts and reading and educating myself, you know, real estate just popped out as what I thought was the right route to go to diversify. And so I started within real estate. Um, as a lot of people do, they, they kind of start where they know or, or they know somebody who's doing it. So I actually started uh, purchasing notes, uh, selling houses on contract and and holding the note uh, because I, I had a family friend who was doing that strategy. So started there um, and, and that went fine. I mean, it, it's decent returns, you know, you're the debt so, and, and it's collateralized by the house. So it's got good security. But what really hit me was was one of those houses that I had sold on contract. Um, the guy turned around and sold a year later. And because I was the debt, I got the HUD statement. And I looked at the HUD statement and said, 
wow, this house doubled in value. You know, this guy, the house went from like 70,000 to 140,000 in one year. And all I'm doing is get my loan paid off. So I was like, that's all well and good. But if you really want to build wealth, I, like, I want to be on, on the asset side of things. I want to start building equity. So, um, started there from, you know, purchasing, um, so, some single families and also started really learning about multifamily and the scalability of multifamily and started passively investing, uh, with other sponsors. So, um, you know, knowing that I wanted to actively own some apartment buildings at, at some point, but being self-aware enough to know that there was a lot I didn't know that I was still a relative newbie. Um, I, I went out and started investing with people, you know, who knew more than me. So I, I went out and invested in 10 deals with um, about six sponsors and just use that as kind of my next level of education to continue to, to be in those deals, creating returns, but also learning through the process and seeing what those in, what those sponsors do, seeing what I like, seeing what I don't like, seeing how they interact with investors, I'll, kind of always just with the eye that I want to do this on my own one day. And so did that until about 2019 and then 2019, um, had my first active syndication. So the deal that, that I ran with a few partners, uh, it's still going great to this day. And in, in 2020 acquired uh, three more properties and it was continued to roll from there. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Um, and you mentioned that you first got into multifamily by passively investing. And that's something that we always tell uh, anyone that's looking to get into the space. There's yeah. in our opinion, there's two best ways to get into it, which is either getting with a coach that's done a lot of deals and has a track record or to passively invest in a deal, which I, this is what you did. Um, and and yeah. you said that you invested in six different deals? 10 did you different do that in, deals. With the intention? 10 different deals. Yeah. Wow. So did you do that with the intention of trying to like find which uh, style you like the best and to see what each person did that you can kind of take from? Or was that just exactly. trying to diversify or both? Well, it, both. Both, right? So, so I picked different <clears> – <throat> excuse me. For an investment standpoint, I picked – you know, it's diversifying, right? Different operators, different geographies, uh, a few different strategies. So, you know, see some, so some of it was senior housing. Uh, most of it was multifamily, uh, a couple industrial deals or warehouse deals, um, kind of, you know, just sprinkling a few things in to, to get a feel. And, but to your point, always with the eye that I wanted to, to learn from these sponsors. And I was transparent with that going in. I mean, you kind of have to, you have to be tactful in, in how you communicate that. I mean, a lot of sponsors, if you come in and are like, I want you to teach me everything you're doing, they're gonna be like, oh, this is more of a headache than your 25 or 50K is worth. Um, so you just do it in a tactful way. But I, I was very transparent that like, I want this to be an education process. I want to understand, you know, how this works. I want to understand why you're doing this and that. I'd be able to ask those questions. And, uh, and most of the sponsors were very accommodating and it was a great education for me. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, like you said, so I kind of did both. I, I hired a mentor. I'm in a couple of mentorship programs still to this day, um, and went out and passive invested. So I, I don't think you can go wrong with either strategy. I do think that the benefit, the benefit of passive investing is you're, you're getting good returns while you're doing it. So your money's at work while you're learning. And that's really nice. Uh, I would just love to know, I mean, was there something that you learned as a passive investor or um, something that the sponsors told you or showed you that made you uh, kind of go towards multifamily instead of those other asset classes you mentioned you invested in as a passive investor? Yeah, it was, you know, I don't know if it was as much as, as what those sponsors showed me. 
Uh, it was more, I think, my just continued education. I started attending a ton of, of real estate uh, conferences, like 10, 12 a year for a couple of years, just trying to immerse myself, um, built built different networking relationships. Um, like I said, a couple mentorships, you know, some paid, several unpaid, right? I, th I think both are important. Paid. Paid is good for accountability because I mean you're paying the person, right? And they can be and their their job is to hold you accountable and make sure like that you're gonna be successful. I mean, ultimately it's up to you, but but they've got a little more skin in the game. Unpaid, I mean, are great just because it can be a little more a little more informal. Um, but anyway, so I really I had a person that I talked to um who had about a thousand units in multifamily, and he really opened my eyes. Um to, to all the benefits, right? There's a ton of benefits, just how leasing structure works. So in a commercial lease, if you're leasing in an office building, right? Leases can be five, seven, 10 years. Maybe they have some sort of escalator for rent. Maybe it's 2% a year, but you're locked into a really long term contract. Um, so if the market is moving, rents moving faster than 2% a year, you're still stuck in at a contract for 2% a year. Whereas multifamily, you're resetting those those leases every year, right? And so it allows you to move with the market and be way more flexible and and capture that upside or adjust to the downside uh, for protection if you need to. So that's a huge benefit there. Also just, I mean, if you just think about things really simply, right? Because sometimes we get too complicated in our analysis, but there's a couple of truths. One is that everybody needs a place to live, right? You don't have to have an office. We've proved that, right? But everybody needs a place to live. And also, if you just, I'm a big econ guy. So if you look at just supply and demand dynamics, there's just not enough housing in this country for everybody that, for everybody that needs it. And if you look at even, even taking into account the rates of construction, uh, we continue to widen that gap and, and, and COVID and the, the, you know, basically stopping construction for a number of months, just continue to exacerbate that and construction costs continue to increase and continue to, to exacerbate that. So I think if you just look at supply and demand, when there's more demand and supply, what happens? Well, prices increase, you know? And so just looking at all these things, multifamily, this seemed like the right place to me. And it's proven that it has, it is the right place for me. So just kind of follow up with that. Are you through your own uh, assets? Are you providing affordable housing? Is that uh, your business plan or, or what does that look like? So there's, there's, there's kind of two types of affordable housing, right? There there's, we call it capital A affordable housing, like official affordable housing, where you you're getting tax credits from the government. It's kind of a public part, public private partnership. Right. And so, so Burgeon held the firm that, that, that I work with, um, they have a group that focuses on, on those deals. So Burgeon held has kind of five different strategies, uh, under the umbrella one or one or really kind of two blends are value add. And, and that's where I focus another group that focuses on tax credit deals. So working with governments, creating that and providing true affordable housing, meaning that your, your rent is, is kind of pegged to a percentage of, of folks income in that area, right? You can't raise rent over a certain amount. Then there's kind of lower, lowercase affordable housing, which really is everything else that we do. We really call that workforce housing because our bread and butter is really like a B-class suburban garden style property. And and then the average, you know, the people that live in our properties are making typically anywhere from about 40 to $60,000 a year. So you know, for the most part, blue collar, you know, workforce housing. And we, we really focus on remaining 
affordable. I mean, so one of the major metrics that we look at are when we're going to purchase is what is the rent to income ratio? What that means is how much of somebody's income are they paying toward their rent? And so what HUD tells us, housing and urban development tells us that anybody that's, that's over 30%, paying over 30% of their income to rent is, is rent burdened, meaning they can't afford it. So we, we watch that very closely and our portfolio overall is, is in the low 20s, somewhere about 21%. Um, so we like to make sure that when we're purchasing, there's a nice cushion there to make sure that even as we come in and make the improvements that we need to make to realize our business plan, there's, it, it still remains affordable for our residents. I kind of add to that. Um, something that we've always heard and um, something that you know we just come across is that that is also the always going to be a stable like demographic to house. So they're always um, you know, the A class will likely drop if in a recession, and uh, also mm -hmm. the C, C class at, tenants will might lose their jobs. You know they're going to be the most affected by a recession. So um, do you also kind of agree? Has that been your experience where um, that has been also kind of steady in terms of rent paying and um, just always being able to fill those units? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the, so there, there's definitely kind of a tenant demographic piece to it. There's also just, uh, I equate like, there's no official rule for like what makes one building an A, a B or a C, right? <clears throat> Everybody kind of generally understands the guidelines. I look a lot at, at age because the other factor, when you, when you talk about B versus C, I talk about, I talk about B as, as something that was built in the 80s, 90s, you know, even early 2000s, you know, when you get 60s and 70s, you know, I'm always considering that a C um, because you you face so many more CapEx issues when you get to properties that are, you know, 50 and, and over 50 years old. So I think that's something that you need to consider, you know, when you're, when you're making investments is the age of the property. And, and, and not that that's a bad thing. You just have to budget appropriately, right? So I, where I see a lot of people get in trouble is just expecting and budgeting the same amount for CapEx as they would need on, you know, a, a building built in 85 for a building built in 74. It's just a totally different animal. Awesome. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I mean, um, I know that, uh, you know, you're, the company that you work for now is a private equity firm. Um, yeah. For those listeners that aren't really uh, aware of what that is, do you mind explaining what exactly private equity is uh, and then how that pertains to what you do like now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it really is a, so we have, we have a couple of funds, but, but we also have a lot of what we do is, is just ind independent syndications, right? So it's probably easier to explain just from that standpoint, because private equity is kind of a, it's a term that uh, is, is used a lot, but it's, it's really pretty simple. It, it's just pooling private money together to go out and make an investment, right? We happen to purchase um, apartments with the money that we do. But what we do is we go out, the idea is by pooling money together and we invest personally, myself, other partners, at least 10% of every deal. So it's usually about 10 to 30% of, of every deal comes from, from our own money. Um, but we're pooling money together to go out and buy something that's bigger and better than what we could buy ourselves. And, and that's all relative, right? Because I mean, at this point internally, we could buy a pretty decent property ourselves. But, you know, it allows us to go out and buy 400, 500, 600, you know, we have a 940 unit property. Um, and it allows us to continue to, to build up a portfolio of that. Like, like one, one thing that I had to really come to terms with when I, when I was starting this process was 
Cause I, I was going down the path of like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go buy my own 50 unit. Right. And I'm going to run that 50 unit. And I had a mentor say, well, great. But then what do you do? And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm going to run it. He's like, yeah, but all your money is deployed in that one building. And then you're, you know, you're just, you're just running that. Like you can't grow from there and really introduced me to the syndication model where you can, you know, you can diversify by taking and pooling money and, and ultimately buy better properties, but buy more of them and diversify. Right. So, so long answer to your question, but, but private equity really, whether it's, whether it's bringing private money together to purchase a business or purchase a property. I mean, cause these apartments really are just businesses. Um, that's what private equity is versus going out and buying a, a stock on the stock market. So our, yeah, our investors get shares in an LLC <clears throat> that owns the property. And that's all the LLC exists for is to own that property. So we, we are issuing securities, which is, but we're, we're issuing securities privately versus you go out on the stock market and a public market and buy, you know, Tesla or, or whatever you want. And you touched on that you and your team pretty much invest 10 to 30%, I believe is what you said into every deal that mm -hmm. you guys do. Uh, I know that, you know, as a passive investor say that we're looking to, to invest with you. Why do you think, you know, to, can you just inform our audience why that's so important for the GP to actually invest in their own deal? Man, so I was a, I was a passive investor before I was active, right? And that informs a lot of my decision making. And me personally, I wouldn't invest in a deal where somebody doesn't have their own money in that deal. I mean, if somebody's coming to me and telling me, "Hey, man, this is a great deal. This is a great deal," uh, but I'm not investing in it. But you, but you really should. I w I would think twice about that. So I think it's as simple as that. I think you got to have skin in the game. 100. percent So going into uh, what your your company is doing at the moment. Um, I know that you guys are pretty much targeting large multifamily properties and you guys are using your your private money from your investors. Um, you guys pretty much just currently in this market with all the compressed cap rates and all. How have you guys managed to adapt to the current to the current market? Are you guys still finding deals pretty easily that meet your investors returns or are these things that you guys are kind of just struggling to find? And if, if you are struggling, how are you guys adapting? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um because we we've split our value add strategy. So by value add strategy, I mean <clears throat> where we're going out and acquiring a property that already exists, right? And improving that property versus versus building new. Um, we've split that in into two strategies. So we have a team that still focuses on those, let's call them 150 plus unit big institutional deals, right? And, and in those deals, we have seen through cap rate compression and, and honestly, well, cap rate compression driven by interest rates, but also driven by intense competition, right? So many new syndicators have entered the market um, because really there's a, there's a lot of coaches and gurus teaching this, right? And, and, and the market has been flooded with folks. So the competition is extreme. It drives prices up. We have seen cap rates compress. That's one of the reasons, and that does drive lower returns. So, you know, we're not seeing the same return profile on those deals as we were seeing two to three years ago, right? Still good, still double digit, um, but just not, not what we were, we were seeing when prices were lower, right? So because of that, we've split the strategy. We've actually started uh, a new strategy in 20, in 2020, which was kind of niching down and, and going small. And it's not something you hear from, from a firm larger that has, you know, one and a half billion in assets under management. But what we've started looking at is, is, you know, properties that are primarily a hundred units and less, 
um, in more tertiary markets, really finding those diamond in the rough properties, those those mom and pop owners that we can buy from where, where we can bring in management efficiencies because we have our own internal management company um, and deals where because the because with smaller properties, there's less competition um, in markets that are more tertiary, but we're comfortable with in the Midwest and have less competition. And because of that, we're able to buy better values. We're able to buy at higher cap rates, better value, and we're able to return more to our investors because there's more meat on the bone. A lot of these properties that we're buying will be $150. I mean, we just bought a property three weeks ago. There's $150 below the market. Um, from a rent standpoint, I mean, on our first renewals, we were able to increase rent $140 um, just be, just from loss to lease because it, it was just a management issue, right? They just weren't staying up with the market. So these types of deals, uh, these smaller deals in more tertiary markets are, are where people are, are really searching for value and we're able to still provide returns that investors would have used to have been seeing four or five years ago. So but the short answer to your question is we've created an additional strategy because we recognize uh, the the issues with the lower returns and the larger properties. Yeah. So you guys pretty much adapted and shifted into different markets that maybe isn't as competitive. And you also shifted your buying criteria just to go a little bit smaller, just so it's less competitive. That's right. And much. it's, it, yeah, exactly. And it's not that we, we got rid of the other strategy. It's really just an addition to. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know that you guys have a vertically integrated uh, property management company as well mm -hmm. as an in-house construction team. And I was looking yep. at your website and I saw like an eight hour renovation. I would yeah. love to first touch on on why having a vertically integrated property management company will better your returns to your investors. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind asking, answering that question first. Yeah. So there's, I'd say first off, it's just control. Um, it's the, the ability to um, just have direct influence over, over what the property management how the property is being managed, right? For it, just from a much more intimate relationship than if you're working with a third party kind of has their processes and their things and their things they like to do, right? I think the second thing is just just like owner owner perspective, I, I guess you could call it where like our property management company thinks like the owners, not like not like another business who's trying to make their own margin, right? They're thinking about it as how can we maximize the return for the investor? Because ultimately that's what is going to drive uh, the needle for the entire firm, right? So, <clears throat> so it really is focused from a, how do you, how do you maximize the investment approach? Not from as a property management company, how do I make the most margin for my property management company? And then I think that, Oh, I was just going to say one one other quick thing that we really saw during COVID is just the the ability to move quickly. So when things switched with COVID, like in like last March, right, um, we were able to move very quickly, find assistance for people, and I think I think just just alter strategy, like shut off renovations, you know, and move things around, and just I think pivot because everything is kind of internal within one house. Pretty much agree with you. Um, in the multifamily space, the property management company is more than likely typically um, the most important member of the team. You know, they're going to be yeah. coming up with budgets, making sure that we're sticking to budget, making sure contractors are getting, you know, everything done. Um, but, you know, when, you know, it is a little bit different going from, you know, primary, secondary markets, 
uh, into either third party or I mean third tertiary markets mm -hmm. or even new markets. So how are you guys kind of um, integrating a new property management company for a property that you find in a market that you're, you're not typically investing in? Do you guys typically just bring somebody from somebody else to start managing it or do you just find people in that area? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's kind of all of the all of the above, depending on the situation. So um, we have a property in in uh, just south of Dayton, Ohio, in a small town called Franklin, Ohio, um, that it's 100, 110 units. Well, it's being it's being managed by um, the team that that is in Dayton because we have 500 units in Dayton as well. Um, so in that scenario, we kind of have, it's kind of a hub and spoke model, right? Where we have the, the big mothership property and then we can manage these smaller properties, um, around that. So, so that works out in that situation there, there's just great management efficiencies. Um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of the gold standard where we can find that, where we have, you know, a larger property where we have on-site management, um, and we can use that hub and spoke model that that's great. Um, otherwise if it's a market that, that, I mean, we're just very deliberate about the markets that we want to be in. And we, um, we enter markets by placing a flag on, on a, on kind of like a mothership property, if you will. So we were able to plant the flag there, put boots on the ground as a management team and kind of land and expand. Right. So similarly with the property that we have in Lexington, Kentucky, where we have, um, 400 something close to 500 units already in Lexington. We just purchased a 50 unit that's about two miles down the road. And we're, and we're able to, again, realize those efficiencies. That's awesome. Um, and you mentioned that you also have an in-house construction team. Uh, and I mm -hmm. saw, like I said, mentioned a few minutes ago that I saw that video of you guys doing an eight hour renovation. How yeah. is that, how has that made that possible having that in-house? Because I've never heard of anything like that. Is that something that you guys do throughout the whole unit or is it just like, specific rooms or, or you know what I mean? No, like, it's, I, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's throughout. Um, there's, so I'll, I'll send you guys the link so you can include it. There's, there's a YouTube it's up on YouTube. There's a time lapse of this process, like a three minute, they take eight hours and condense it down into three minutes and you just see, you see the chaos, kind of the organized chaos going on. So this, this was a process that was developed um, over about five or six years. And it, it really developed because, um, you know, the, the normal turn kind of renovation strategy presents a lot of issues. And these are issues that we ran into. Um, and, and some of them are, are things that people don't, don't think about as much. Like if you have a large property, so uh, let's take, we, we have a property in Indy, it's a 740 unit property. And, um, you know, if you're going to renovate that many units in, in a typical model, it would be probably a three-year project. So that's three years of disruption to your residents because of construction teams on site, three years of, you know, of having to manage labor, you know, and all the subs, three years of having to source uh, materials. And the problem is with like labor and material sourcing is the longer you expand that time period, the harder it can be to, to get those things. So for example, we've had situations where, you know, we needed to six months in, we need to place another cabinet order. Well, those cabinets are, are, they're out. They don't make those cabinets anymore. Right. So, you know, so when we, when we do it now, what we're able to do, we buy all the materials up front and we're able to come in and knock it out 
uh, keep the keep the subs engaged in a much more condensed time frame. So you're not worried about them doing other jobs and other things, um, and not and also just get in and out and not have to disturb the residents for as long a period of time. So that 740 unit we turned in 11 months, including all the exteriors. Um, and, and through that time, the other huge benefit is that you don't drop occupancy because we do these renovations occupied. So what that means is the resident leaves in the morning, they go to work and they come home and they've got a brand new apartment. And, and if you look at the video, we're doing flooring, cabinets, countertops, appliances. I mean, we're really doing everything except paint um, just because it's, it's difficult to, to paint in that time and have it dry and things. So, <clears throat> but we do just about everything, uh, fa you know, faucets, fixtures, all of that. And on that 740 unit property, we maintained our occupancy of about 94% through that entire year process. And, and that's huge from a, um, just from a P and L standpoint, it's huge for the investors because I mean, the biggest thing that, that will degrade your, your performance is are just unit, unit downtimes having, you know, if you have to have each unit, your renovating down for three weeks, a month, two months. I mean, that, that just eats into your profits. That's crazy because most people will wait until the, the tenant is either, uh, either is going to bump up their rent when they're signing a new lease or they just have to move out and then they'll do the renovation. Yeah. But you guys are doing that while they're there. That, that's, that's awesome. You did. Nice. Yeah. So you, it, people are always like, well, doesn't the, doesn't the resident just like trash it if you, um, if you renovate it, you know, before, before you raise the rent. And the answer largely is no. I mean, you, I'm sure we have one-off situations, right? But the answer largely is no. What we actually see is the resident appreciates us giving them a, a better apartment for the same amount of rent. They get to live in it. They get used to it. And then when it comes time to renew, um, oftentimes they'll stay and, and they'll pay, they'll pay the higher price. And so it, we actually see it work out, you know, very beneficially because I think people get, get used to that standard and, and, you know, they like it and they, they don't want to move. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I really, I definitely will include that in the, uh, in the show notes, but to kind of go into our next phase or stage in our show, we'll go through an express round where I'll ask yeah. you five questions. Um, I just wanted to let you know before we get started. Right on. So the, the big, I wanted to know um, the biggest mistake that you've ever made in real estate and what did it teach you? Biggest mistake. Well, there's probably a few. You're always learning, right? But the one that stuck out to me right away is was one of my first investments uh, I ever made was when I was really dipping my toe in to to syndications, uh, and I didn't really have direct relationships with syndicators yet. Was I, I went out um, online, you know, to some crowdsourcing sites and started finding deals. And there was one site that I invested with. I invested two deals. Um, one went fine. <clears throat> one went fine. The other one uh, lost all my money because the sponsor committed fraud, and he what it, he went out and he um, he defaulted on on his his Fannie Mae loan because he went out and, and also got a, a bunch of other loans from banks um, and collateralized the property. So he had you know these multiple layers of loans, which you can't do. And so he he defaulted on his loan. He did he did some other shady things too. But end end of the day, so my my investment is still in limbo somewhere as, as they're trying to like unwind this. And this was this was what this was from like 2016. So I don't know if I'll ever see that money again. But uh, that was definitely a punch in the gut. But also just showed me. So 
Um, so I have my own podcast. It's called Ritter on Real Estate. And a lot of what we talk about there is just how do you make really good investing decisions? And, and a lot of what I harp on is get to know the sponsor first. Like don't make an investment if you don't, if you haven't personally talked with the sponsor. I just think you have to be able to judge people's integrity. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, some people go full background checks and all these things, but I think at least have a discussion and, and it just makes sure that you feel in your gut like that person um, is a good person at the end of the day. And and I wasn't able to do that, you know, and I didn't, I didn't do that due diligence. And there's other things that I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing back then. I was basically just scrolling through and saying, oh, that property looks good. It's in a good market. Like, let's go for it. Um, you know, not the level of due diligence that I would recommend. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, definitely a painful experience, but I'm sure you learned a lot. So I really do appreciate you sharing that. Um, sure. What is your favorite book that you've read? If you have one for personal life as well as business life, I would love to hear one. Yeah. Um, man, I'll go old school, Th Think and Grow Rich. It's still one of my favorite books. It's still a, a book that I, I will reread um, or, or just dive into specific chapters if there's something that, I, that I'm needing at that point. Um, so kind of personal and business. I mean, I mean, that really is like that, that was just the beginning of all, all of this personal development, right? Like if, if you see what a lot of the, the gurus and folks now are teaching, if you hear that and then you go read this book, you realize where they all got it from. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same formula. And so really just starting from the beginning, I mean, it was, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the book, but it was, it was written back in the twenties and, uh, everything still just rings true today. Definitely a book that we always read, but go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say from a from a real estate standpoint, if there's if folks are like just getting started and just trying to understand multifamily and kind of how it works, uh, a book that that I read early on was called Wheelbarrow Profits uh, by Jake and Gino. Uh, I mean, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, there are a couple of, of just great guys, um, and they just lay it out really really simply. It's really approachable. Um, I think they give a really good kind of like 101 overview on, on how to invest in multifamily. What is the best piece of advice that you would give to someone or that you've received? Hmm. So the best advice that, that I can give is, is a lesson that, that I've really had to learn over, over the past probably you know 18 months, especially um, a lot around like just launching my podcast and, and my own branding and things. My website, all this is just, um, you know improve like don't seek perfection up front just get started and improve through iteration what i mean by that is you just get started and then over time you're going to continuously make improvements right like like i get, always give the example with my podcast if i was waiting for like the perfect podcast like i i still would be waiting i wouldn't have even started you know but but i started just about a year ago i started um First podcast was posted April 30th of, of last year. And I think the improvement, like just me as an interviewer, the quality of the show, all those things have come just over time as I've learned more through doing. So just get started, start doing, and that's that's the best way to learn. Yeah, 100%. Uh, what is a daily habit that you would accredit some of your success to? Meditation. Yeah, I try to meditate every day. And uh, it, it just like my life has a lot of chaos in it. You know, I've got three small kids, five, three, and one. Um, we've got the business, we've got multiple projects running, you know, I've got the podcast, kind of my, you know, my own personal brand things going on. And uh, so there's a lot going on. So you know, you've got to stay centered and focused on what's important and meditation lets me do that. Exactly. I agree. Um, so if there's a if someone in our audience that wants to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to do? 
Sure. I'm a pretty easy guy to get a hold of. Uh, you can find me on all social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Um, you know, I'm pretty active there. You can go to my website, kentritter.com. That's a great place. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can sign up uh, to be an investor and learn more about our deals. Uh, and then my podcast, Ritter on Real Estate. And you can find that anywhere that podcasts are. That's, that's all we have for you today, Ken. I really do appreciate your time and hope we can do this again sometime. Talking to you. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks, guys. I, I love it. I love what you're doing. I love that you're bringing young entrepreneurs, you know, kind of into the space and talking about real estate. I think it's great. My, so you mentioned one thing about advice, like, like I would say, like, start investing in real estate right now. Like, I wish I had started when I was 22, right out of school. And, you know, at 36 now, I'd be light years ahead. So it's great what you guys are doing. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Real Life Monopoly podcast with the Donis Brothers. If you want to learn more about what we do, make sure to visit our website, www.donisinvestmentgroup.com. And if you aren't already, make sure to follow us on all platforms at Donis Brothers. Let's be great today. Have a good one.